Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. Today we're talking containment and please can my guest say hello and introduce himself. Hi, my name is Neil McHenry West and I'm the director of containment. Right then, do you want to give us a brief synopsis as to what containment's about? Yeah, so containment is about um, a group of, well it starts with Mark um, who wakes up to discover that he's sealed inside his flat and quickly discovers that all of the residents in this council block have been sealed inside their flats one morning with no explanation why and all means of communication to the outside world cut off Uh, and a group of the residents band together they break through the walls and sort of form a little unit um, and as they start to see hazmat people in hazardous material suits appearing in the courtyard they start to wonder what exactly is going on so you're you're down as sort of story by as well as it being written by David Lennon and the pair of you sort of got that credit. Yeah. Where did the, what was the inception of, of of containment as a story then? Where did that start? Did it start with the pair of you, or did it start with David, or start with you? Um, it it started with me um, quite a long time ago actually. The original the, the original premise was back in about ninety five. I came up with it, and then I kind of shelved it. And put it to sleep for a while because it was it was quite different back then, and it's mm. changed quite a lot. And it was after I finished my last film, Undertow, um, in about two thousand and eight, when I was trying to think of what would be a good film to try and get off the ground as a as a debut feature film. Mm. That I came back to the idea, and then it changed into uh, much more closely what it is now, mm. which, which was and it was just the premise at that point. It was just the idea of uh, of a guy waking up and finding out he was sealed inside his mm. home and that the whole block had been sealed in yeah. um, and, the, and and not being able to communicate outside. Um, and so that was just really the starting point. And then David uh, came on board in 2009 and we started developing it. And I think we probably spent about a year and a half just getting the story into place. Okay. And we just spent a lot of time meeting up and, and batting ideas back and forth. And he'd throw a he'd throw an idea and I'd throw an idea and, and eventually it sort of shaped and formed into to what it is now. What would you say were the kind of big, with, with that sort of clear idea of what it was meant to be about, yeah. then when you're trying to develop a story from that from that seed, what were the what were the big story challenges for you to resolve? Well, I guess the first big story challenge was that as a setup, that could kind of go anywhere. Yeah. So it was, um, we, we tried a lot of different, different routes there were a lot of different ideas that we just threw out uh, different ways we could take it um, I mean initially it was going to be set up as, as this kind of big social experiment 
that was going to be something fairly mysterious, which would have been really good fun to do, but it was just very, it would have been probably far more abstract and was becoming, it was, it was, it was a bit convoluted and too complicated to do in the kind of setting that we had. Yeah. Um, and, and I mean, the one thing that stayed constant was from the very beginning was that I, I wanted to really tell a story which was about, about people and about human nature and about how people uh, can react badly in certain situations under pressure mm. and, and really just about the choices that we make. You know, I was always, I was always, I was like the idea of, you know, having a group of people that are very relatable, just ordinary people and sort of pulling the rug out from underneath them so that you lose all of the kind of social um, structures uh, that society gives you. Mm. And then just to see how they react, you know, who's going to be the hero, who's going to be, who's going to react badly, who's mm. going to make the best choices. Because uh, I think that's fascinating, and I think I think you know, in, in the normal sort of day to day, we all like to think of ourselves as very, very civilized and very, um, you know, uh, together. But actually, under mm. pressure, you know, there there is a lot of kind of base um, instincts that can come to the surface. Yeah, I mean, we're not we're not all practical, and I think yeah, in, in a sense, you actually draw that out in in, in quite a humorous way in the film. Where the um, where the, where Lee, Lee's character sort of says, "I'm an artist. I make stuff," and it's like, yeah, <laughs> I think it's a was it a nurse and a computer guy, and it's like, "I'm a, I'm an artist who makes yeah. stuff," but it's kind of like, "What do you do with that to save the world?" Yeah, yeah exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, completely, completely. Um, so yeah, yeah. I mean, that was that was. It's those kind of things that were really interesting to us as well. You know, to sort of learn about the characters and the people. And to um, and yeah, partly to put them in a, in a, an extreme situation and see how they how they can work practically together to try and to try and solve it. So that, that it's obviously his story where he gets joined by other people that, that then, but they but all the time they only ever really add to his dilemma as far as I could tell because they've not got a big mission. Whereas what we know at the start of the movie is he is late for a child custody battle. Yeah, for he's got a genuine problem. On a, on a very minor human scale compared to the one that's outside that they're going to discover over the duration of the film. Yes. And it's almost like you, you tell the story of how that little battle going on in his life can go further and further to the background as the need to just to survive becomes important. Whereas I think mm. when your other supporting cast join him, they've already come to grips with the fact this is about survival. They might understand what's going on. Yeah. But their mission is nothing more than get out of the building to find out what's going on or else... Yeah, we're going absolutely. to go mad. No, absolutely, absolutely. Mark, I mean, the, uh, even though it does sort of slip into the background, Mark is always still um, quite desperate to. Well, at the beginning, to, like you say, to get out of the flat, and then as the story progresses, he becomes more desperate to try and make contact with mm. his with his family. Mm. Um, and and then and even though that strand of the story goes into the background, it gets mirrored by this kind of makeshift family that gets formed. Between him oh, and, and Liku yeah. and Enid, so it kind of still simmers there in a different way. Oh yeah, no, I wasn't, yeah. it wasn't to suggest it goes away because obviously you still pay off on it in in, in the final throws. Yeah, you know, we, we we get back. To, it's almost like there's a circular journey that goes on. Except, except it's not necessarily through the, the pairs of eyes that we start with. Yeah, definitely. Not wishing definitely. to be too spoilery there, but uh, yeah, <laughs> um, hopefully that was vague enough. Um, when when you, I mean, the location you chose is is nigh on perfect. I mean, you've got, as far as brutalist yeah. architecture go, you've kind of picked the best ones. That that beautifully, absolutely identical with the gap in between. That is how 
Corbusier and sort of de- develop. If you, if you look yeah. at the stuff down in um, Marseille and places like that, which obviously a bit more sunnier than it is in in, in, in British climes, <laughs> where that can work. Whereas in British yeah. climes, it just looks stark as hell. Yeah. Where did you get? How did you come across that location as a place to shoot? We were we were really really lucky with with the the flats in Southampton. We weren't expecting it. To be honest, we spent a lot of time looking for places in London, okay. um, which made sense because that was that was where the the crew and, and the team was all based, mm. um, and a lot of the a lot of the architecture that that we had in mind was was again you know a lot of the brutalist architecture, which is what we talked about a lot. Mm. You, know, you know, sort of composing the kind of you know the things like the Balfour Tower and and things like that. That was all uh, that was all that was all in discussions when we were when we were working on it. But we found it incredibly hard. Um, uh, you know, we tried pretty much. I think we tried every borough. And um, just to get a building that we could use in the way we wanted to for the story, yeah. it just wasn't happening. Uh, so we started looking further afield, and we just kind of stumbled across the place in Southampton. And um, the most amazing thing was that the council in Southampton were just incredibly helpful and supportive. That's good. Of to it. Yeah, no, they were really, they were really good. They were really keen to get us down there, and they. Um, yeah, and they, they just they, they sort of took us through it every step of the way, and um, and it was funny for me going back there just because that's where I studied, that's where I was at university in Southampton. Oh, okay. It's literally just across the water, across the bridge from from where we filmed. Yeah. Um, so that's the first time I've been back since then. But um, no, we just we went there one day and and I just fell in love with it. It was just it's, it, like you say, it was perfect, and we weren't expecting to get somewhere by the sea either. That no, was, no. that wasn't in the written into the script and that again was perfect it gave an extra element of isolation and it gave a kind of nice quality to you know to contrast with the um with the sort of overall surroundings although i should say here actually that i do that i do i have mixed feelings i i love brutalist architecture i have while so not liking it i have a real love-hate relationship i Mm. think there's something inherently beautiful about it even though there's something also incredibly stark and oh yeah yeah and think about so yeah, so I always have mixed feelings about it, but um, but I, I I just love the look of it. I mean, Trollic Tower's listed now, so I think we we kind of we're kind of over that hump in some senses. Yeah, definitely. but I think when it was when it was the when it was the plaster to stick over every social ill, oh, where it's like yeah. knock up a concrete tower. Yeah, there was not a lot of thought, and obviously you fire enough bullets, you hit a target once in a while. Yeah, but but you but you did pick. I mean, the shots of looking at them where you've got like the, the green in the foreground and stuff. Yeah. Where, because it's so stark, you could swear you'd put it in post. You know, it's like it doesn't even look yeah. like it could be real. It's yeah. like, who would put that there yeah. kind of thing? So yeah. it's a wonderful... And I guess because so much of your action is contained, mm. it gave you a view of the world that was that, that took us outside and enabled us to sort of breathe a bit, I suppose. Yeah, definitely, definitely. No, it was really nice. It was really, it was, it was, it, I think it really helped the story to have that contrast with the greenery and the water as well, mm. just to, you know... Uh, because that's because that's also visible through the through the window sometimes. So there's always a, a sort of I don't know how to describe it. Almost like an us, us not an us and them, but the sort of that, that contrast really of of being in this fairly stark concrete block. Mm. But there's always this almost sort of visual image of hope just outside. You've got the sort of greenery and you've got the forest just there, and you've got the water, and it's always just slightly out of reach. Well, I mean that was all, that's always the social ill of of the high rise, wasn't it? it was on yeah. the thirtieth floor. You'd have Granny Smith. Looking out of a window and the lift's broken, and then she's all she can see is the beauty of outside. Exactly. But she's yeah. completely isolated, and obviously you take that to the max in the sense of <laughs> you've been forcibly kept inside. Yeah. And there's a mysterious thing going on that's a reason to stay inside. Yeah. 
and you're you kind of pick and that create so the, the the hope that's outside is is tempered by what the hell is outside as well you know why are they wearing hazmat yeah. suits why now that's the the, the uh, before we go into detail about more detail about the stories when you when you'd got that script finished and you were you were building up to the shoot and you were finding locations like you've got yeah what aspects of the shoot seemed the most sort of insurmountable as it were or what aspects of the shoot were you could you see the challenge as a director and how did you overcome that um i guess the biggest challenge was was the flat itself in which we shot that um we we did debate for a while whether to shoot in um on location or in a studio okay on a set build um and there would have been advantages and disadvantages to both. Um, I mean, the advantage of a set build would have been we'd have had a lot more freedom for light and camera yeah. for placement. Um, but we, but well, I mean, in the end, the the flat and the shooting on location um, was logical for a lot of reasons, and it was great because, and particularly for the cast, I think, because they had they they were actually in a real location. Which just adds a quality that you just don't get when yeah, you're they weren't looking at pretend windows. Yeah, exactly. It was, it was all it was all there, uh, and I think they they really liked that. Um, I remember talking to Sheila Reed about that, and she she said that was that something that was um, a real bonus because it's not something you get as much mm. these days. Um, but it was also a massive challenge because it, uh, Arthur did an amazing job, Arthur the DOP, because um, it actually looks a lot more spacious on camera than it actually was. It was I was going to say you fill a lot with a little space. Tiny. I mean, it was tiny, and yeah, as yeah, soon yeah. as you had the cast in there, the crew, you know, you had you know, you had sound with that boomstick, you had the 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 camera equipment. It was incredibly claustrophobic and cramped, mm. um, and that was a real challenge because um, it was a big ch- technical challenge for Arthur, which which he he was able to work around brilliantly because I, I it was really important for me that there be a lot of visual freedom that the camera be able to roam around from room to room down okay, the corridor okay. and to sort of move around the room almost mm. 360 yeah um and so the biggest problem there particularly because it's such a small space was lighting um and arthur had this um devised this brilliant way of actually lighting it almost entirely from outside and just from a few source lights which you actually see on screen in the actual room oh, so okay. there were no there were no lights on stands on the on the floor Blimey. at all Blimey. so he had this brilliant lighting out coming through the window and then you've got little things which you you wouldn't even notice even though they're on screen like um little bunnies which light up and little kind of um camping lights occasionally when it turns to night and those are the only source lights in the thing so i don't know how he did that but that mm. was um that gave us the freedom visually to shoot it the way we wanted to because otherwise you know, it would have been a nightmare because you're in such a small space anyway and then to be constricted by saying, okay, we can't shoot anything over here because we've got all our equipment here and we've got to move it around, you know, we wouldn't have had the time. It's interesting, actually, one of the things I wrote, down, I wrote when I was watching it was there's, there was a lot of energy in the film despite the contained location. You felt yeah. a lot of the... You went with a lot of their franticness, as it were. Yeah, yeah. That's, well, that's really good to hear. I, I think I think probably a lot of that is, is down to the... Cinematography. I think just having that freedom to move move around, mm. and um, you know, and Arthur, again, Arthur and I talked a lot about having about it being handheld and about having a lot of a lot of movement within mm. the the scenes. Even even not not even necessarily dramatic movement, like the, like sometimes the camera obviously glides down a corridor from room to room, but yeah. even just within a scene, just small movements like the odd sort of subtle pan or whip pan or or just very subtle movement. It, I think it just gives. It gives the film a bit of energy and it gives it that that 
thrillery, horror as- aspect of it being slightly unnerving. You're never quite comfortable. No, true. I think that's right. And, and, and like you mix it up. It's not like particularly that. I, felt, I didn't think, oh, there's one thing or other or that he's doing or here's his signature, whatever. Yeah. It was the sense of, you're right. It was probably, probably in a way, more the more, the more affecting is where it's that slight slow movement or yeah. or a longer hold than maybe is comfortable and then suddenly we're yeah we're thrust into another problem when and that, I think that maybe that comes from the story as well in the sense of I thought you set up him very well but then as and when we kept trying we kept resolving what might be wrong yeah there'd be another ingredient in the pot and you're like well, where's that come from then yeah absolutely absolutely I mean I mean yeah completely I mean obviously here we're talking about the the technical challenges for shooting but I think I think David had a, an incredible challenge writing it. You, mm. know, you say, okay, we, we, we've got a, you know, uh, a feature-length film. You've got effectively f- sort of four rooms. Mm. And, uh, and, and we've got to, you know, it's a thriller, so we've got to keep tension high and keep adding um, plot elements into it, which, which keep it ticking over and keep it moving forward. Yeah, yeah. That was really, that was a, that was a real challenge. Um, to keep that going, and I think a lot, a lot of the work that went into that, then, like you said, sort of translated into the film, then, and actually made our life a bit easier when we came to shoot it because it was, it was, it was there in the script. So I mean, in, in, in a, going back to what you, what you said earlier, then, so the time spent for that eighteen months or so prepping the script together and getting it, you were able to see, like, almost like work these problems through before. Yeah, it became a challenge you know, when you kind of, when you somebody's writing a script in a dark room on their own. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, in fact, in fact, just saying that reminded me of of, what, of the other big problem that we had when we went into pre production, and this was literally a few weeks, um, if not less, before we actually shot it, was that David and I had spent so long working the story out, and he'd spent so long writing the script. Um, that we we had we'd drawn we'd drawn floor maps and actually you know layouts and had had an exact idea in our head of how the flats work together and because we were shooting on location when we actually found the location which was close to the shoot we suddenly realised actually it's not the same it's not the same as what we've got so we had to we we had to literally go back to the script and rework elements in order to fit the geography of the actual flats we were fit working in right which wasn't always easy but um, but yeah that was a challenge that was a big challenge just leading up to the shoot. I thought the the um, the old neighbour character was done really well, in the sense that she she um, she appeared to be this one dimensional sort of xenophobic bigot who knew yeah. better than everybody else because she was old. Yeah. And then through the the way that you and because she's a supporting character, not it's not the main story. The fact is that she becomes somebody throughout that yeah. you learn that grows on you. So at first you might be a bit oh do we need her in this this family as it were this makes you family yeah. but actually. She comes into her own, doesn't she? In terms of, she does. No, she really does. And I think, um, and a lot of that's um, a lot of that was Sheila. I mean, she did. Um, I mean, ca- casting wise, though, I mean, where, where, how did you how did you get Sheila in the movie? Um, well, she was she was always on our list. We had we had a, a, a sort of a, a very small short list of people that we thought could play Enid really well, and she was she was one of the ones on our list. And and you know, we never we never really hoped we would we would get her interested in it. Um, oh. But we sent her the script and she came back very quickly and said that she loved it and oh, that she wow. really liked the role. Um, and then I met up with her, I went to her house and met up and we talked about it and it was it was something she was really, it was clearly something she was invested in and she liked oh. the idea of of the sort of story arc. But I think actually she, she put even more into that because in the original story, 
it's it's the same arc. She does she does start off as a sort of xenophobic, very embittered character, and she she gradually softens um, and forms this kind of um, sort of surrogate family mm. um, with Niki. But actually, it doesn't go as far in the story as we originally had it. And I think I think Sheila invested a lot more into that relationship with um, with Gabriel, who plays Niku, the boy. Um, you know, on set than we actually had in the story. So oh, okay. I think she brought. I mean, there, it was there, but it was it was played down in the original in the script. I think, mm. and she still kept more of the sort of embittered side of her, even though she softened a bit. Whereas actually, and I wasn't sure about it when we were shooting. There were times when I, uh, you know, when I, I talked to Sugar and I wasn't quite sure if we were pushing it a bit far. But she was, she was very sure about where she wanted to take it. So we just we just ran with it, and and in the end, I think it worked really nicely. I think a telling line that she has is. Is which reveals because if she's if she's embittered and thinks she knows everything, yeah. then this situation as as a, as a veteran of the war, as it were, as you portray in the movie, she's yeah. she's got experience that everybody else hasn't got, which is when the shit hits the fan, yeah. and it, then then the normal rules don't apply. And I think she says something on that I can't remember word for word, but she says something on the lines of you know people ran over each other, ran over their own kids and stuff to get into shelters. Yeah, and in that line alone you get that she does actually know more than everybody else in terms of when it gets desperate, then desperate things happen. Yeah. Exactly. And so therefore she and what happens is, is that that instead of being like a road to, a road to Damascus where she kind of just turns, turns around and becomes like this lovely heart, heartwarming woman. It's not that at all. No. It's the fact that she understands the play and yeah. knows how to act in that situation. Whereas others, it's all new. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's, that's kind of the tragic irony of her character to some degree as well, because she starts when she, when, when the group first get together, she is sort of claiming to have this this grand knowledge of what's going on, but everyone ignores her because they just think, oh, she's just the bigot from next door. Yeah. Whereas in actual fact, as the story progresses, mm. you know, you actually start to realise that actually, yeah, there is there is some genuine experience and wisdom there that's behind all of the bigotry mm. and the xenophobia, uh, and that's and yeah, like you said, I think that starts to come through, particularly by the end, and um, and that makes her, I think that makes it quite tragic, really, because you feel you do end up feeling. For her, because you realise so much is just a defence. Yeah, and, and and it's like some with so many other people. Fear, fear makes you yeah. put up a wall that's not true, but it keeps everything. Else, it keeps what you don't want away. Yeah, absolutely. And there's there's there's, there's some very sort of subtle political things in there as well as I mean, there's the big political thing, which is what if the government turns on you? What do you do? I mean, that's a big a big part of what what we see in the story. Yeah. But also, I thought that given the exchanges between pe- between people, certainly I forgot the names of them, the, the the couple with the conspiracies and the yeah yeah Aiden and Sally yeah. yeah I mean essentially the undertow of what they're saying the, the undercurrent of what they're saying is like well you know we're we're better than, you thought we're better than these people you don't we don't talk to our neighbours and all that kind of stuff this idea of we live these pod like lives and then yeah. the situation has suddenly thrown people who can easily avoid each other away and obviously you have got the the hard nosed fella who's a bit more. Yeah. A bit more kind of blunt in the way that he's, you know, he's yeah. going to fight, not fly, <laughs> in any situation. Yeah. yeah. Whereas the conspiracy, not he's con- he, he constantly is trying to get away from the problem. Yeah. As opposed to hit the problem head on. But within that, you get that there's there's a comment. I think there's a comment in there on on society out of the horrible situation you put them in. Yeah, abs- absolutely. I mean, it was it was always our it was always David Knight's intention to. To try and make the group uh, kind of like a, a kind of microcosm of society, in the, in the sense that you've got this, that you've got this range of um, 
this rate, this generational range, and you've got a, a class range as well within mm. there. The class range, certainly. Yeah. And you've got these aspects that are playing into it, which which was uh, again part of the kind of almost part of the allegorical aspects of it, I guess, to say you know this little microcosmos society, you know this uh, because it's about human nature, you know, to have people from from all walks of life, um, you know, was was important so that you you could you could give it a kind of universal quality. But yeah, there is there is that aspect in, in it. I mean, um, High Rise was um, J.G. Ballard's book um, was was a book that David and I talked about when we when we were when we were uh, developing it. Um, and although it's very different from that, because obviously that's very much a class based mm. story, that there were elements of that that fed into this. Yeah, they're very much the sense of the sort of isolated society that these people live in, like you say, within these little pods within mm. the within the building. And they don't talk to each other and some think they're better than others and you know and yeah, they come from all sort of different perspectives. Yeah, that was that was And also some some know that the others think that they're better than them and so Yeah, exactly. It was a chance to really bring that to a head. Yeah. Without it completely destroying the group, but it was it was it had to be dealt with before the group could move on. So it was not, I thought it was nice the way yeah, you kind of brought those things to the surface, and then then you got the random the random effect of the of the young kid, who I think I think in a way his his kind of left yeah. turn as it were that happens in that sort of establishing the problem yeah is a really is really where you bring it in. So we when we get one of the hazard map people yeah. into the group, we begin to see that the them and us is yeah. really we're all them. Yeah, we just got different bosses. And yeah, if our boss is the big boss, then. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That was um, that was in fact that was a very important part of casting Hazel to find someone that could. Um, Hazel's quite. A, it's funny because she's a, she's a character that joins the story kind of halfway through. Yeah, but she's such a pivotal role because she's um, she's really the face of the Hazmats, and it was so important to find someone that could uh, to play such a range, you know, because she's 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 a survivor. She's a survivalist. She does, you know, there are moments when she's quite manipulative and does what she has to in order to survive. But at the same time, she's she's very human and she has her own weaknesses. And um, and in some respects, she's just as afraid as as everyone else, even mm. though she's professional and just trying to do her job. Mm. Um, and to get that balance on that character was really important because um, I mean, you and I were talking before we before we started the the podcast about. Um, about the whole sort of government uh, conspiracy aspect of the story, which is set up at the beginning, which is very much a, um, a kind of classic uh, trope of, of this kind of setup, you know, mm. with, you know, people get sealed inside, they don't know why the government comes in, you know, what are they doing? Um, and, and David and I really wanted to play to that, to get people's expectations that the hazmats were the bad guys, mm. essentially, and that actually this was a big conspiracy. Just to then sort of um, play around with that later on in the film. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't want to go into too much detail, but but uh, ultimately to really um, to really play with the idea that there are no good or bad guys as such. It's just people making choices, mm. you know. And um, sometimes the choices are particularly bad. Sometimes not so much. But that's that's really where the horror comes from in the story. I think. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, there's definitely a little bit of. Um sort of, you know, Orwell's animal farming there with, with the people who are stuck and obviously yeah. who's in charge and you've got no choice because you can't, yeah. you can't go, there's, the great thing, I think one of the great things about the film is there's no, there's no way to reason with the big problem outside. Yeah. There is just a trying, almost like a, a, a never ending puzzle for the, for the, for the, um, for the main sort of cast. 
yeah. to solve a problem. You know, it's like, well, how do we solve this problem? Because the first problem is just get is, is simply getting out of an apartment, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I mean that that's such a I mean such a neat trick you did there, which is not just waking up and there's hazmat people out in the street, but actually waking up and your door being sealed yeah. as a setup is such a scary thing. It's like who's done that? Yeah. And then to see all that happening. Yeah, it's so mysterious, and it's, I mean, you know, in the home being being your safest environment, yeah, it's terrifying to suddenly turn that into the switch the taps on. There's no water. Switch yeah. the, you know, switch the fridges. The fridges off and stuff. It's kind of they're just like you know when 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 hope goes, what happens to people, so to speak? Is, yeah. is a, I think it's a big thing that you've tackled really well with the film, and the, I think for people listening who've not seen it, you know, the obvious comparisons would be. Um, even though it's not a zombie film, would be like Night, the, the way Night of the Living Dead handles its mm. main action. In the, sense yeah. that the threat's out there, but actually the people inside become a threat to themselves while this because of what's feared us to be. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. David and I talked about Night of Living Dead, particularly with the, the um, particularly with the second act. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because when it when it switches to then being actually sort of holding yourself up inside and yeah. trying to stop people from getting in, definitely, yeah, no, absolutely, yeah, yeah. And the thing, the thing, um, the the nineteen eighties Carpenter, um, the thing was a big reference for us as well, just because of partly the whole idea of the sort of based on the siege um, setting and the isolation mm. and also just particularly the characterisation you know, right. a group of characters and no one really fully trusts each other and people are sort of forming their own little little factions within the group as a whole yeah um, that was that was that was a big uh, reference point for us as well so where where's where's the film shown so far then so so far um, so far it's shown at it's just shown once in London which is at the East End Film Festival which is in yeah. July um but it's just started to be played in festivals abroad. So we've had it in, it played in the South Texas International Film Festival. And um, yeah, and it, and it was, where else? It's played in the Massachusetts mm. um, Independent Film Festival. And it's going to be playing uh, New Orleans uh, next month, which will be fun. Um, so yeah, so, so that's, that's it so far. And we've got the release coming up at the end of next week on the 11th. Now, before we start the podcast, we were talking, and I mean, uh, because of things I've said, it might insinuate it's one thing or another, but we were talking about genre, about yeah. what it might or might not be. Yeah. So what what's your feeling about your film? Where do you where do you fit? You've said yourself it's been a question that's come up with the film, so where do you feel it fits? Is it, yeah. is it, it dystopian future? Is it, is, it, is it a horror? Is it a thriller? Is it sci-fi? It's, yeah, it's a, it's a difficult question. I mean, it's... It's a thriller, essentially, from mm. my perspective. It's a psychological thriller. Yeah. But um, there is so much of the framework for it and so much of the the way we approached it in terms of its form was inspired by horror films that I think there's a strong horror vein running through it as well. Yeah. Um, the sci-fi aspects I'm not so sure about. It, it does get mentioned a lot in relation to it and there's a lot of, a lot of sci-fi... Um, iconography and ideas and they're like the virus the suits and things but um i would say more of a thriller uh, mm. with, with horror horror aspects that's that's from my perspective anyway how how did you i mean what this doesn't this won't spoil is it because you you don't at any point explain 
what the virus is or how it's come about or yeah. how we might get rid of it. It's just about there's a virus and the virus is the threat yeah. of which there are people in control trying to get those that have got the virus out of the way in some way, shape or form. Yeah. What, what, how did you wrestle with that notion of having to explain yourself or, or not? Because I can't imagine there must, have been, there must have been a temptation at some point to try and rationalise it out as opposed to I think the mystery element is so much stronger yeah, no, I, I completely agree. No, we did, we talked about it. Um, we talked about it during development and we talked about it during post-production. Mm. Um, um, it, it's a balance, I think. You have to, it's it's finding enough to give the audience something so that, that it's not completely um, ignored, but uh, but not wanting to make it the, real, the, the focus, really. Because, I mean, for me, the film is never about the virus. The virus is just a MacGuffin. Yeah, it's yeah. just it's just a, a, a device to get the plot rolling, yeah. and um, and really the story is about this group of characters, which is why um, it was a difficult conversation that we had a few times about the ending, about um, how much to reveal because by revealing too much you make the film about the virus. Yeah. Whereas by um, keeping it ambiguous um, and making it about the characters, you kind of stay true to the story, but there's a risk that you may alienate some of the audience because they might want to get more information about what's really going on but for me that was never as yeah. that was never as important as it's just you know once once you, once once we get to the ending you know um, there's a reason that it stops then because really the, the, the story being told is is finished yeah I think um, you close you, you get closure on the story but you don't if you really want closure on the bigger umbrella yeah. hanging over it then you, you're yeah. kind of watching the wrong film aren't you yeah <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but it's no. I, I think it's. I think it's a genuine risk, and there was. It was definitely a, um, a very valid conversation that we we had to have. Yeah. And there were lots of different viewpoints on it. Yeah. Um, and different, different ideas about how much we should reveal. Mm. But um, I think in the end we we got a good balance. I, I hope we did anyway. I hope we did. I'm sure. I'm sure it'll it'll annoy some people. But uh, no, no, no. I mean, for from my point of view, for what it's worth, it kind of it, it was like you say. It felt true to the story. The way the way you end the movie. Okay, well that's feels good. true to the that's story good. I just watched, not yeah, not not something that I just need all because you don't when any story, any film, you don't need all the answers to everything. No, absolutely, absolutely. because you know if if I want answers to everything, then then everybody's parents need to be involved in every character, so we know how far, <laughs> wide, and reaching death and destruction goes, and that would have that would yeah. have really been a distraction, and therefore yeah, if we'd have had prime minister on camera going, this is because of pigs in the food chain, yeah, you'd yeah. have been what. Yeah, it's like I knew the price of fish. <laughs> so yeah, no, I think you. I mean, a bit funny enough, a bit like um, we talked about it before. But you know, like Cronenberg's stuff in the seventies, certainly shivers and things like that, where it's it's the notion of modern living that might cause it. I mean, obviously, um, yeah, you know, yeah. Night of the Living Dead was was um, was the civil was it was allegory of the civil rights thing, but Dawn of the Dead, you know, looked at consumerism, consumerism. And, yeah, you know, and things like that. And I think yeah. you, you know. Despite the fact you shot it at Southampton, if you were, th- if, as someone that lives in London, if you, if you, your, your, your film could be about what it's the, the mixture of people that live in London side by side, which is very different than most places in Britain, I think. Yeah. You can have an artist living next door to a marketing professional couple living next door to a guy who's not got a job. You know yeah. that that can happen, and therefore when you throw them together. Yeah. No, absolutely. I, I mean, it's funny, you know, just talking about. Um some of the architecture we're talking about earlier, you know, somewhere like the Balfour Tower now that's, that's um, I think, listed. Mm. Um, 
you know it's become it's gone from 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 being through a period somewhere that you wouldn't you would you would want to avoid to becoming a very uh, desirable place but you've still got people living there who've been there for decades and so you've got a real mixture you know you've got a real mixture of people who um who are sort of you know 30s to middle-aged professionals that have that have mm. make a decent living and and have got a flat there and then you've got people who were sort of put in there from social housing who've lived there for all of their lives and you've got you've got that real mixture of um, yeah. of of people from different different walks of life and different generations and um yeah maybe perhaps in london even more so yeah and you and i think you'd have lost that if you'd have just done like four or five terraced houses in a row in yes. suburban street, it wouldn't have felt like this. It wouldn't have had the same impact of no. of the of the peril of being locked inside. Yeah, yeah, I think that's one of the one of the things that's fascinating about a tower block, you know, as well. It's, it's it, there's inevitably a sort of slightly horrific quality to tower blocks, mm. you know, which is ironic considering you know their their initial uh, the initial ideas behind them being that they they were they were uh, uh, had very positive connotations. Mm. You were kind of reaching into the heavens, you know, and you were sort of you know, able to sort of live the high life literally and see across the city whereas in actual fact it's I, I for me I, you know I'd find it terrifying you know you live sort of 20 stores stories up you know and you know just the prospect of you know what if you what if the lifts break what if you get trapped what if you know there's a fire any all sorts of things it's kind of um and just you know it's just a big monolith as well just I, I mean just going to the set every day was was quite amazing really just uh just you know, standing there and, and looking up, there's such powerful, you know, symbols. Really, I think. Yeah, I mean, I mean, for people wouldn't know, but we're we're recording this. We're not a million miles from the Olympic Village in Stratford. Yeah. And if you look at the way that's developing, yeah, it's just high-rise residential blocks, which isn't exactly the most organic way to grow an open space. No, no. Just the front. And if all you do is put put a, a mini supermarket on the bottom, and that's sustainable living. It, yeah. I mean, I've I've gone running around there of, of of a morning, and it's it's just, it can feel as soulless as they come. Yeah, yeah. As much, and you know, we and I don't know, I don't know why that is because obviously on the on the continent that kind of density of living yeah is widely accepted. But I guess when the weather's nicer, more often than not, making public spaces where you can hang out and talk to your friends and yeah. smoke a cigarette is fine. But in this country, you you can't do that. So therefore, there's yeah, a, absolutely. We've definitely bought into the Omi's oh, Catholic Castle and home and stuff thing. Yeah, yeah. Shut the door, shut the world out. Yeah, absolutely. Don't go out until you have to go to work again. Yeah. Um, is there is there a, actually before going to details about what's coming out? One thing from a from a geek point of view. Um, yeah. As as a writer, looking at the way you edit edited together. Yeah. That you 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 carefully use sort of fade to black and fade back in again. Yeah. Was that on the page or was that something born out of the edit? No, that was something that came out for the edit. Um, I mean, Artu, the editor, um, who's brilliant, and, and you know, is is very is very, um, and rightly so, very strong-willed about sort of particular elements that he thinks will work and which won't mm. in, in any given context. And Artu and I are both big fans of cutting straight to black. So actually, there are a couple of moments where it does fade in and out, which which we debated over for a while because mm. we we tend to try and I think both of us would probably tend to avoid that kind of transition but um just yeah just no a, a, a lot of the editing choices i mean a, a lot of the choices that were made rather in the edit um came through the process of putting it together in in post as opposed to just being on the page i mean there's obviously a, a lot of the structural aspects 
that were there in the script. Mm. But um, one of the great things I think about the story, because it's set over over sort of 24 hours in the one location, is that it did give us a little bit of freedom to play about as well sometimes. Mm. So, you know, there are certain key moments within the film where something changes. Um, so, so, for example, we had... So I'm starting to ramble now with this. Sorry, no, this all makes sense. No, for, for example, there are a couple of there are a couple of scenes that we, only only a couple that we weren't able to put in the film, but it was purely because um, something had happened, such as for example Hazel joining the group, and therefore a scene wouldn't play for a very obvious reason because yeah. she's not there in the, in the room. Uh, or, okay. or you know, there's sections where they're trying at the door, and then after that, you know, the story and the plot progressed, and therefore you know other scenes you might not be able to place back or forward because of these key turning points mm. um, but aside from that there was some freedom to actually move them about and we did that um, we did that a little bit in the edit we were able to see mm. well actually this scene would have much more impact if we moved it here mm. even if it's just five minutes earlier than if we have it here and you know and moments like when one of the main characters meets a particularly grisly end which I, who I won't say um, you know, there was a big debate after and I was, should we cut to black, should we fade to black, which is gonna have the right emotional impact. Okay. So it was it was interesting, you know, it was it was those were all these are all things you just kind of discover when you're when you're putting it together and, and sort of try and test it. No, it's good to know because from a from a writing point of view you kinda you you you're you're trying your best to sort of find the pace and you don't want to offer too much direction when you're writing on the pace. Yeah. But, but if it's necessary, it's necessary. But I was interested to know that that was born out of them piecing together what you had because it felt sometimes and maybe I mean I, I might use the wrong language here I don't know which was the fa- which was the fast fades and which was the cut to blacks but yeah to me it felt like because you've got that twenty four hour period obviously fitting into just the, just a little over seventy minutes or so is you felt like you were kind of blinking you know like when you're watching it yeah you're blinking and then when your eyes open again you kind of you've moved on and here we are looking at something else and that's what it felt like so it felt really natural it never felt like it doesn't feel like I was being stopped from something happening it felt like it was a uh, like a blip, uh, uh, what do you call it? like a like a jump that felt quite natural. Yeah, well, that's that's really good to hear. Yeah, I mean that that's that again. It's it's one of the conversations that we had. I mean, I, I think I don't want to speak for him, but I think one of the things that our two, in particular, the editor was was um, wanted to try and do was avoid using them wherever possible, so that we didn't have that um, very episodic mm. quality to it. You know. Even even though that work can work brilliantly in something like say like The Shining, where you've then got an actual title card there, but that's yeah. that's a, that's a very specific reason because that yeah. because that so it becomes so random with the different name days, it becomes kind of meaningless, which is the point of it. Whereas yeah. with this, it, yeah, we were we were trying to sort of piece it together as with as as few as possible, basically, to keep to try and sort of find other ways, more interesting ways to get the the time passing you know so even if it was with sound using sound to cross over time mm. periods so that you had a sense that actually we'd moved on to a later period in the day mm. there were little things like that we were trying to do so that we could minimize it but um but yeah but it's good to hear that when we did use it that it, it had a sort of natural quality to it yeah cause if, if, if i put it if i imagine if because the story is from lee's character mostly yeah you know if i imagine it's hit because he's the one who's bewildered and and the one who seems more has the most aptitude to try and yeah. work out what's going on. It just felt like that, like if, if as if it was him just going, oh. yeah. You know, yeah. For, for the podcast's sake, there I did blink my eyes. Uh, um, <laughs> but it's that kind of you know the, the way that the, the the image moved on. So it's like suddenly yeah. he's now looking at this, and and suddenly it may be a new problem that's re- re- revealed itself or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Well, absolutely. Um, and and sometimes sometimes it was in a very basic sense. Um, we just couldn't 
couldn't get away without having it. You know, some mm. there were times when we we tried something else. You know, um, you know, like a, a clever edit or use of sound in order to create the, the impression that time had passed. But then we would screen it to you know the producers or, mm. or to someone else in the team, and they would just look at it and say, "It makes no sense. Are we? Are we? Is, is this continuous? Is this later in the day? You know? Oh wow! There, there, okay. there, there were just times when when it was just okay. There there isn't a way that we can bridge the gap here. Let's let's go for a transition that will. So that what, so that. from from the point when you finished shooting the movie and then ends into post, how long did how long did post last for you? For you to finish movie? Um. Gosh, I think we started in we started posting about June, uh, and then we'd finish we'd finish by 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 uh, I think November December somewhere okay, around there. Okay. So I mean it was um, yeah I, I I mean I don't think it slowed anything in anything down. I, I think it's just it's one of the it's one of the it's it's one of it was certainly one of the tricky elements of post that comes out of being in one location. Mm. I think, you know, if, if you've got a film which is in multiple locations, then transitioning between scenes and time becomes naturally easier anyway because because it becomes much it's visually much clearer, you know, and you yeah, and yeah, you yeah. might you might opt for establishing shots or or you might just go for a, a simple transition, but it becomes obvious that you're in a different place and therefore time has passed. Yeah. Whereas when you're stuck in the one place and because the change of light was was quite subtle from day to night mm. you know it was um, yeah it was it was that was that was one of the trickiest things to get the pacing right and to get the sense of time passing yeah. I think that was a, that was a real challenge now anybody anybody thinking I might be being very kind to this movie because I'm sat talking to the director it's been getting you've been getting some good press haven't you in terms of reviews for the movie and yeah we've some really lucky, yeah. sort of really prestigious places I see here you got the review in sight and sound yeah, that was that was that was a, a really nice review. No, we've been really we've been really lucky actually. Um, I think uh, I mean it's 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 lovely that people are that people are, um, are taking to it and that they're oh. liking it and that and and that so many people get what we were trying to do with it because um, it was you know it was it does play to so many tropes at the beginning mm. and we try to turn a lot of those on their heads and from my perspective I was I was I was quite often thinking are people going to Gonna get what we're trying to do here, or is this gonna just fall flat on his face? And it's nice that people are then turning around saying, you know, yeah, I don't like it. So that's that's really gratifying, and it's and it's great that the people involved are getting such um, such great appreciate. You know, uh, 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 appreciate. You know, David's work as a writer, you know, has mm. been cited so much in the um, in the press, which is brilliant because you know he had such a challenge there, mm. and the visual look of it. You know, Arthur's work as as cinematographer, you know, and just anything, you know, and for the production team, you know, just the guys, the producers putting it together, it was such a challenge, you know, on such a small budget mm. to get something like this done and to try, you know, it was always our ambition to try and get something that had, that felt like it had a big scope, even though it was done on a very small budget. So, um, I'm, yeah, I'm just really pleased that, that it's getting, it's, it's getting such great notices because it's, it's really nice for the, for the team. I no, and I, yeah. I think I think that's the the, the trick you pull off is because I've I've seen you know I've been I've been being yeah. a big genre head myself. Yeah, I've seen my fair share of contained films, and I think that's the biggest trick you pull off is that you don't you don't make me feel like I'm in a room for the entire movie. And I know, admittedly, yeah. you, you literally do go out of it. Don't get me wrong, but <laughs> but for the large part of it, you're you're in the tower block and you're, yeah. you're working in tight spaces. Yeah, um, but. I feel like I'm, it, that that problem is part of a bigger world. 
Yeah. You know, the idea yeah. a lot of films get 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 seem to get it wrong in the sense that it's just about it's about trying to make it all about where you are, whereas actually wherever you are exists in the bigger world as well. And I felt I felt that you conveyed that really well. Oh thank you. Well that's that's really good to hear, yeah. That was that was a big part of it, that that it, that it wasn't location specific. It could be mm. it could be anywhere and that it was yeah, dealing with something that was was more of a kind of universal thing rather than something very specific to that geographical location. This is something that could only happen in South in Southampton. <laughs> <laughs> God forbid. Yes. Uh, so with, with you with you having your festival run continuing now, what's yeah. what's the plans for release? Have you have you got people working with you to get to get it out there? Have you got? A, yeah. Well, again, again, is there any dates you can tell us? Yeah. No. I'm I'm really pleased that it's 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 actually getting a cinema release, which is um, fantastic news. Yeah. No. It's it's really it's it's great. It's great that the. Um, that uh, Christine and Pete and Casey, the producers, have managed to pull that off. I think because it's it's um, I mean it's something you always want. You will, of you course want you do. Yeah, we don't, we don't set out to get our films on on an iPhone. Do we? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so no, so that's that's really exciting. It's it's coming out on the eleventh, so um, next Friday. Okay, eleventh um, of September. Eleventh of September. Sorry, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it's going to be um, it's getting a nationwide release, but it's getting a limited release nationwide. Yeah. So it's going to be it's going to be at the Rich Mix in Bethnal Green from the eleventh. Uh, next week through to I think the 14th or 15th okay and then it's playing around the country so it's playing at some showcase cinemas in uh, Manchester and Leeds and I think Bristol it's going to be playing at the Harbour Lights in Southampton which will be great which is yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the regional premiere down there which is um, you'll be um, going down to that one yeah yeah and no, I'll be going down to that one um, and that's just gonna, I think that's just for one night only down there and then um uh, and a few others which I can't remember. Um, my well, producers look, we'll, we'll probably get, kill me for not. Well, no matter. Well, you you can get me before this goes out. You can get me some some list of dates and stuff, and we can yeah, that'd be show, great. We can put more on the show notes. There's no yeah, that's not a problem. Yeah. Um, are you going to be doing more doing Q and A's with you and David? Going to be doing Q and A's with the movie at any of these places? Is that planned? Uh, yeah, that's the plan. <clears> I mean, I, it would be great to do as many as possible because they're, they're always really fascinating. Um, I mean, we're. David and I are going to we're going to the Rich Mix on Saturday on the twelfth mm-hmm. in um, in London. Um, I'm not sure. I, I think there was talks of Q and A, but I'm not sure that's been confirmed. There's going to be a Q and A at the um, at uh, gosh, I can't remember which one actually. This uh, the Brighton one, the Brighton okay. one, because it's going to play in Brighton on the 21st of September, which Fantastic. I, which is great actually. I'm looking forward to that because it's my hometown. Oh, so nice. I'm going down for that one, which would be great fun. Um, and Casey, the, one of the producers, is her hometown as well, so that would be great. Um, and uh, there might be a couple of others, but I'm not sure yet. But okay, um, well, I'm going to well, try and go to them. Between but. between you leaving here and me putting this podcast down, get me the details from your producers then, I as, would. as to what's what, and we'll put the show notes. Definitely. Now, the hardest question I'm going to ask you now is the yeah. one I'm prepared for. Usually, I do tell people this one as a reminder. Because um, it's Britflix, and I liked, as, as selfish interest, I like to get a recommendation of a British movie from people that come on. Either, okay. either your, I mean, your favourite British movie it can be, or maybe a lost classic that's been sort of forgotten that sh- people should revisit. And or, I mean, I'm not saying you have to say one. And or a more recent movie because British movies are fighting against a lot of Hollywood behemoths. So there's a chance that a film could come and go, and people didn't get a chance to see it, yeah. even though it was three years ago. So if there's films that you know that you thought were interesting more recently, by all means, recommend us those as well. 
Um, and how would you class a British film? Just uh, one made here, or British British director, or, or you can you you you'd be as free as you want. I'm not going. I'm not going to tie you down. I mean, obviously, but, but, but if it feels more British, I mean, the, the the classic one I get with horror ones is is American Wealth of London, a British movie. Now, okay, yeah, for yeah. some people, it's it, it's it's definitely not. But yeah. it's cultural identity is so British as a horror film, given yeah. the faces that appear in it. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna say one that you've probably seen um, and it's got a British director and it's set in Britain but it stars an American actress which is um, Under the Skin which is, okay. which is an, a big one so I think that's a very British one it. the BFI put a lot of money into that yeah but I think I think that's an incredible film I yeah. think it's amazing I think it's it does one of the things it does one of the things in fact um, one of the things that I've, I'm lucky enough to be able to talk about with containment a lot is the sound design, mm. which um, which Nicola, our sound designer, did an amazing job on. And that's something that Under the Skin, um, I think, has an incredible sound design. Mm. Um, I mean, it's visually brilliant, but the sound design and the music as well, I think, are just, are just phenomenal. It's a, I mean, it's a very... It's a real marmite film, I think, just because of the nature of the film. You know, mm. it's not going to be everyone's cup of tea, but... Um, in terms of the form, in terms of what they do with it, I think I just think it's incredible. And uh, I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah, uh, I, I absolutely adored it. Great, yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it was brilliant. I mean, have you read the book? I've not read the book. I'd like to read the book because I've heard it's quite different, and the book goes into a lot more detail. The book is like, I mean, the, the the film is like a cottage industry version of a much more industrial version of what's going on. Okay. So you get the sense of the people intervening in our life, yeah, that yeah. are not quite human. But it's on a. It seems to be. On, I remember reading it, thinking it was on a much bigger scale. So I thought it was really clever for Under the Skin to reduce it to one operative, as it were, for one of their. Well, I, I think I think that says a lot about the different forms. I, this is a debate that gets that gets talked about a huge amount. I think, which is which is when something you know when, when literature is translated into film, hmm. and that they're, they're different mediums. And I think. I always think it's fascinating to see what filmmakers do with something that already exists in literature because actually doing a straight trace, you know, it's even just to take something like, something like Harry Potter, so many complaints that all of the elements from the books didn't make it into the films, but actually it wouldn't work that way, no, you know, all, no. because it's a completely different medium and you do, I think, I think sort of cutting it down to something, to something very simple and something very concise to focus on hmm. for a film makes it a lot stronger well just I mean just the simple adage of show don't, show don't tell exactly in a yeah. book you can tell up to your heart's content exactly you can go inside somebody's mind and spend eight chapters telling me what somebody thinks yeah if you show me that yeah that's looking at a man's head and yeah. listening to a, a voiceover yeah yeah no, so I'd, I'd really like to read the book I'd be curious to see how it goes. yeah no it's, 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 it's a good it's definitely it's, it's very different I mean in a sense funny enough like um and admittedly, he didn't like it, did he? He mentioned The Shining before. Obviously, Stephen King didn't like the way yeah, Kubrick, Kubrick had done that. Kubrick yeah. interpreted the book. But actually, he, he's, he's done a horror film yeah. that's inspired by a book. Whereas yeah. I think uh, King did a, a more literal adaptation of The Shining, which has not nearly captured anybody's imagination, funnily enough. No, no. I mean, Kubrick just focused, Kubrick focused it very. Kubrick focuses brilliantly on, you know, partly on the question of, you know, how much is is the house and how much is Jack Torrance just going mad, mm. you know, which is a it's a very simple conceit, but it actually works really nicely for that. Whereas I've I've, I've not actually read The Shining, but I, I hear that in the adaptation that he did with it, um, and in the book, there's there's all sorts of stuff like 
giant killer bees and things like that. I mean, there's lots of lots of stuff which I can see would work great in a book. But yeah, we just yeah, yeah. Well, the whole the whole idea that it's built on or whatever is yeah, it's it's not it's yeah. not necessarily because the story like you say the story ends up being about what's up with Jack. Yeah, exactly, exactly. They're much more mysterious for that sense. Yeah. You don't really you don't really know. Yeah. All right, well, look, uh, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. If you don't already subscribe to BritFlix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at BritFlix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. Hey, y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. 